Hello, welcome to another episode of Science Shambles. Producer Trent here. On this week's episode, Robin talks to Dr. Harry Cliff, a particle physicist at CERN, about his new book, How to Make an Apple Pie from Scratch. That is out now. Also out now is Robin's new book, The Importance of Being Interested, Adventures in Scientific Curiosity. You can get that from all good booksellers or get it from our new Cosmic Shambles Network bookshop where you can get it dedicated and signed by Robin, cosmicshambles.com slash bookshop. Remember to like and subscribe and rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts, five stars, if you please. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash cosmic shambles. Get all sorts of extra goodies there as well. And now let's get on to this week's episode. Here is Robin and Harry. A, uh, a quotation from Carl Sagan, one that I have, I have to admit, I, I used to use myself a great deal as well in, in, in stand-up, the uh, how to make an apple pie from scratch. What were your first inspirations? Because you're, you're too young to have seen Carl Sagan's Cosmos in the first time round, whereas I saw it when I was about 11 years old. Yeah, I think the earliest thing that I can remember probably were watching Horizon documentaries on the BBC. And then there was one particular book that really made an impact to me when I was a teenager called The Magic Furnace. I don't know if you've read it, but it's by Marcus Chown, who's a very prolific science writer. And it's it was basically about the search for the origin of atoms and how we figured out that atoms were made inside stars and the Big Bang. And that was, I remember... I think in my year when I was applying for university, you had to sort of write down in your UCAS application, you know, what, what were the things you were sort of reading around the subject? And that was one of the things that I remember mentioning there. Um, but it's kind of been in my, in my head ever since. And I guess what I'd want to do with this book was it was almost sort of taking what Marcus had done with that book and taking it a lot further. He sort of talks about where do atoms come from, but this book goes further and where do the things that atoms are made from come from and how far back can we go? But that, that's probably the thing that made the biggest impact on me that I can think of when I was a kid, yeah. So were you, I mean, did you have, uh, were, in terms of your science teaching, were were the people who were inspirational, was it uh, friends, family, or was it just something that almost feels, I know it's very dangerous to say, innate, because we know nature, nurture, the clash of all of these <laughs> things, but, you know, what what was that, that influence? I think it was a mix. My parents both, well, my, my mum did chemistry at university and she, neither of them became scientists. My dad started off doing physics and then lapsed and became a historian and philosophy of science student and then went off and worked for British Telecom. So neither, they both had a sort of scientific background. So I guess I was always encouraged to have a sort of interest in science. But actually, I mean, it's sort of a, a cliche, but a lot of, I had some really, I had a few really great physics teachers at school, but I also had some ones that were not so great so I think it was a kind of mix I mean there was a couple of teachers who really had a big influence on me but then also I think reading around the subject was a big part of it because actually I shouldn't really say this but I, I think I do say this in the book that physics at school can be a bit sort of sterile in some in some ways particularly the labs remember you doing these experiments where you're wiring up a circuit over and over again or kind of timing a pendulum swing and I, I that's all you know you need to know all those basics to kind of get into you know to, to, to actually get into the subject but it was all the big ideas like, you know, the Big Bang and cosmology and particle physics that kind of drew me in. But you don't get very much of that at school. You only get that really by kind of reading around. So I think a lot of the kind of impetus came from speaking to my dad and my mum about science and uh, kind of reading books, watching TV. And then eventually at the very end, I think, when I sort of, of my school career, you do a little bit of particle physics. And I was like, all right, this is, this is now getting to the exciting stuff. But of course, then you get to university and it's back to pendulums and electric circuits again because you've got to start from the basics. 
Yeah, I was interested. I remember the first time that I met Faye Dowker, who's who's based at Imperial, and uh, uh, you know, she the the general relativity doesn't come in till I think it's the fourth year uh, in in Imperial, which is her most exciting moment. Before she does that lecture, she's properly hyped up as if she was about to go and do Wembley Arena, and uh, and then goes on and delivers it. And you can see all of the students are so excited that they finally get to really meet Einstein at, at, at this point. But it's inter- interesting to me, which is, uh, I was talking to a science teacher a while ago who, who said one of the problems he feels with science education is that really the science education is to find out who's going to be a scientist and that all the other people will drift off in a way that you don't see so much with English or history. You know, it's not expected. Well, uh, and, and I wondered how you feel about that, that idea that we need to have some form of science education which says this is not to say that you're going to end up working at the Large Hadron Collider this is just to connect you to some of the ideas of the universe some of the things that are around you some of the magnificent ideas yeah I think that's right wasn't I think it was Ken Robinson who did a very 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 heavily viewed TED talk about this idea that the education system sort of assumes that your the end result is your university professor um, and, and actually you kind of miss out of not just, you know, even within science, I guess, as you're saying, but more broadly, all these other skills that you should, and sort of interests you should be stimulating. But yeah, I think that's right. And I think that's one of the reasons, one of the important roles, I think, that sort of public engagement has from sort of areas like particle physics and cosmology is there's a lot of evidence that people who get into science or, ha- or have an interest that they may not become scientists, but they have a sort of lifelong interest in science. It comes through those kind of big you know, those big ideas. And, and that has a really important role. And you kind of do need to give, I think, people more of a flavor of that when they're younger. And at the moment, I think it mostly comes in through media and through through other things and not so much. Although I think, I mean, I'm I'm now pretty out of date into my school education was a long time ago now. I think there is there is a move to put more of that sort of like quantum particle physics-y kind of cosmology stuff in a bit earlier to kind of liven the subject up. So you don't just want to spend seven years doing you know, kind of fluids and, and Newton's laws and stuff. It was a bit as important and interesting as that all is. You do need some of that sort of magic stardust, I think, to, to spur people along. And also, even if, as you say, if they don't become scientists, they've got a, a bigger, a better overview of what the subject's about rather than the sort of science as it was 100 or more years ago. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, what what for you, if there was one idea that you would think, because I, I know a lot of teachers I speak to just go, oh my God, they've added more equations to the curriculum, you know, less uh, less story, more, and, and it's not actually about understanding the equation, it's about remembering the equation. So if there was one idea that you think, this is what I would definitely have in science education, this is the one that it's going to be the fantastic whiz bang excitement of there's no way you're going to leave the universe alone now I've told you this oh that's a tricky one I mean I think what well maybe I'll pick on so this is maybe a bit ambitious I don't know if it is but what I think one of the things that people don't really is not widely understood about our understanding of what the world is made from is that we have this subject particle physics and that sort of suggests that we think that the universe is made of little spheres, little particles that kind of join together to make atoms. And that is really far from the modern view of what the world is made from. And actually particles aren't thought of as the fundamental building blocks of the universe anymore. Or in building blocks itself is a problematic term, actually. I mean, the, the basic ingredients we think are these really ethereal, otherworldly objects called quantum fields, which are these kind of ever-present, invisible 
sort of intangible objects that are all around us and the particles like electrons and quarks that make up atoms are in modern particle physics are thought of as little vibrations little kind of waves basically moving around in these sort of invisible fluid like things that are everywhere and i think that idea is is really quite beguiling it's kind of counterintuitive but also really exciting but it's not something that even as a physics student you really get to grips with until quite late on in your education and i think in a lot of the popular discussions around particle physics isn't really i don't think it's emphasized enough that actually this old-fashioned kind of little balls moving around in a vacuum view of the world is, is not what the world is like it doesn't appear to be that way i think that's a really magical idea and you can kind of if you can get some of that across and i mean the mathematics of quantum field theory is way too advanced for you know even most undergraduate courses but i think if you get some of that excitement you get some of that idea across i think that's a really powerful idea that could excite people i love that line i think it's niels Bohr who said that everything all of reality is made from things that ultimately aren't real which is you know that that's uh and and that's going to spark your mind i think so when did you when you started writing this book and as you said i mean what's what's interesting is when we go back to marcus chown's book is probably over 30 years old now so uh it's one one of his earlier uh, uh books um i mean there's been such changes in understanding you know that that, that realization about the higgs particle and the higgs field and and all of so that's one of the things that i think i find very exciting is that the book that you're writing is filled with things that were not no, this was not a universe that existed in in scientific imagination in human imagination you are now this is a new picture of the universe yeah, there's we've we've come a long way. I think I think the book came out in like 1996 or something. So it's sort of been like tw- been 20, 25 years or something like that. And we, it, it's true, we've learned a lot. And in other ways, we haven't. Is this kind of if if you think about particle physics, we have this very very successful, frustratingly successful theory called the standard model of particle physics, which was put together in its current form in the 1970s. Uh, and has kind of we've basically the story of fundamental physics since then, at least in particle physics, has been basically to confirm the predictions of the standard model. So the force particles that were predicted in by Weinberg and others in the 70s were discovered in the 80s and various different quarks were discovered in the 90s. And then the end of the story was the discovery of the Higgs just about 10 years ago at the LHC. So we had this theory and the story of particle physics has been this amazing story of theory predicting the existence of things that had never been seen before and then them being found. So in that sense, we've learned a lot. We know, we didn't know then, we kind of had this idea and now it's all been confirmed and we can kind of speak, we can talk about this story of what matter is made from, what happened in the very first moments of the, the Big Bang with a lot more confidence than we could maybe 20 years ago. But at the same time, in, in some ways, we're still in the same paradigm. We haven't moved beyond the ideas that were kind of invented or discovered in the, you know, almost 50 years ago now. And that's sort of both, I, I guess it's a triumph of, of the theory that was put together, but at the same time, it's quite frustrating because we know that there are big problems with our current understanding of the universe, big mysteries that we can't solve, like what dark matter is, why there's stuff in the universe at all. And the standard model has no answers for these questions. And we've been at the LHC the last 10 years, sort of banging and banging away, trying to find some chink in the standard model's armor where it starts to come apart. And so far, at least, we've not seen anything, you know, that's totally confirmed. Although the thing that's really, and I mentioned this right at the end of the book, that and the thing that I, my, my experiment has been working on for the last few years, there's these interesting anomalies that we're starting to see, which we hope might be 
the first step to a new paradigm, a new way of thinking about fundamental physics. But it's kind of we're in that uncertain stage where we don't yet know if these things are real, whether they're going to pan out or whether we're going to find that they sort of evaporate and we're back with the, the theory from the 1970s again and, and feeling frustrated. So, yeah, yeah, we've, we've learned a lot. We've come a long way. But at the same time, we're still waiting for that big next breakthrough that really would take the story to the to the next step, I think. Well, explain to, to people what the Large Hadron Collider, what it allows you to see, what it allows you to test. Yeah. I mean, the, standard, the, the LHC, well, it's a hugely, you can use it for a huge range of different things, which is, which is kind of strange in a way because it only does one thing, basically, which is it smashes protons together, very the highest energies we've ever, ever been able to create. But because of the wonder of quantum mechanics, when you smash two protons together, you you can't predict in advance what's going to happen. There is a, a huge, a basically an infinite number of possibilities in terms of what particles could get created. So in, in very basic terms, what the LHC does is it manufactures, it makes particles out of energy. The reason you accelerate protons around the ring is you give them lots of kinetic energy, they collide, and that kinetic energy is used to make new particles that you then study. So in that sense, we're studying, you know, what are the basic ingredients of the universe? And these often these particles are things that do not exist ordinarily in the world. They're you know, take the Higgs boson, for example, these Higgs bosons haven't existed in the universe in large numbers since about a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang, because they're, they're very, very massive, they require large amounts of energy to make, and as soon as you make one in like 10 to the minus 25 seconds or something, they decay into to other things. So what another way of thinking about the LHC, it's sort of like a time machine, you're kind of by creating these incredible energy densities and temperatures, you're recreating a microcosm the conditions that existed the very 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 first tiny fractions of a second after the big bang and that's where a lot of the big questions in fundamental physics live it's, there's a lot of mysteries about i talk in the book about the first trillionth of a second and you go we can basically tell this amazing story that goes from now back to about a trillionth of a second after the big bang and that's where things start to get a bit shaky and we don't really know what happened before that and the lhc is kind of pushing us further into that very first fraction of a second but in terms of, so yeah, I mean, people are looking for, you know, dark matter particles being created in these collisions. Um, particularly what I look at is uh, me and my colleagues study uh, particles called bottom quarks, which are, uh, quarks are the things that make up the nucleus of ordinary atoms. And there are two of them in the two of the ordinary types of quark, but there's four other exotic ones. And the bottom quark is one of these exotic types. And we study there, we study these quarks in really, really a high level of detail because they're, they're very sensitive to the existence of other quantum fields, other force fields that might be hanging around in the vacuum that we haven't seen yet. So basically what we're trying to do is catch bottom quarks behaving in a way that the standard model can't explain. And that could be then a clue to what might come next. So, but yeah, and the LHC is amazing. You can do all kinds of things with it, but that's particularly what I'm interested in these bottom quarks. See, I, I'm fascinated by that idea. When you talk about the first trillionth of a second, and I remember talking to uh, Carlos Frank from, from Durham University, he said the problem is that we think that's time. But actually, when you go back that far, and I presume this is part of the whole problem of trying to glue together, you know, this, this, this desk, how can we get gravity and quantum theory to work together? Which is, he says, well, actually, it's not really. It's, in, in his mind, it may well not be a trillionth of a second because we're moving into a time where... Is time space is space to, you know the whole topsy turvy kind of black hole uh, ideas as well. So is that part of the problem? Is when we see that ten to the minus thirty eight or whatever it is sometimes quoted, and that actually we think, oh, so that's just that little bit of time. And he goes, well, it might not actually be time. Does that make sense or not? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, maybe the way I'd look at it is that if you say we know the story back to a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang, you might think, oh, we've got it all sorted then. I mean, that's just, you know, <laughs> a little detail. But as you go, every tiny little sliver of time you go further back beyond that, more and more stuff potentially happens. So you crowd a huge amount of very important events into a very short space of time. So, you know, basically, if you go from the, the moment of the Big Bang to about five minutes after the Big Bang, by that point, you've created, you've gone from something which we don't we don't really know what happened at the beginning to hydrogen helium and lithium and you've got sort of you start to get things that are recognizable and there's a lot of processes that happened in that first five minutes that created all of that stuff and so yeah i mean in terms of i mean time as we understand it probably doesn't wouldn't really have very much meaning because i think well i mean i'm not this is this is getting way out of my comfort zone because i'm an <laughs> it's not a theorist but like you know this idea that time is really an expression of kind of entropy that the reason we perceive a direction for time is that well maybe i'll take another take it another way if you go down to particle physics level and you look at basically whatever everything the only thing that happens down at the fundamental level is two or three particles bang into each other and they bounce off and you can run those processes forwards and backwards and they look basically the same and there's no preferred direction of time but time seems to come about because if you have lots of atoms and lot, well, lots of particles moving around, let's say, for example, you've got a container on one side, you've got you know blue particles for the sake of argument. The other side, you've got red and they're separated. It's, you lift up that barrier. They all bounce around and they mix together. And in each one of those individual bouncing around processes is reversible. But at the end, you end up with a purple container of mixed you know, red and blue. And you can wait the age of the universe. And you'll never find you. It will never go back to being blue on one side and red on the other again. So that so time seems to is an emergent thing that comes out of many, many, many objects interacting in a way. So I guess in that sense, that kind of time probably doesn't really exist during the Big Bang because, you know, the, 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 the world is completely unrecognizable. But yeah, I mean, so time is in some sense misleading because it sort of sounds, this trillionth of a second sounds like we're almost there, but actually every step you take further back gets harder and harder and the energies you need get higher and higher and higher and higher so you kind of it's this kind of like you you kind of approach zero but every time you get nearer it's the the, the hill you're climbing gets steeper which is why you build, keep building bigger and bigger machines and bigger bigger telescopes to try to kind of peer back further and further what have you found the most difficult idea for you to deal with instinctually because i presume that's one of the battles that you have all the time is that you have to sometimes usurp your your the instincts that you are brought up in for the scale of the world that we interact with hmm. i think well so this is a slightly di this isn't really a scientific concept but as an experimentalist the the, the trick to being well the, the kind of the key quality an experimental physicist needs is to doubt everything so you have to when you when you get a result in an experiment for example if let's say you know the lhc we've been looking for new particles new physics for the last 10 years so when you see like a new bump in a graph that could be you know the sign of a new particle there's a huge amount of like emotional kind of drive to believe that thing is real because you really want to have found something new and and that is really dangerous as a scientist because you know of course we want to discover new stuff but if we if we're kind of wishfully, we're willfully kind of trying to find it in the data, you can easily fool yourselves. So I think that's one of the hardest things intellectually to kind of overcome as a scientist is, is to actually say, okay, as much as I would like to 
you know, discover something really exciting and new. I've got to, every time I come up, you know, come up against a new problem or a new bit of data that could be telling me something, I have to start by, you know, doubting it as much as I can and trying to scrutinize it to find all the places where it could have got, could be wrong, where we could have made a mistake, where, you know, we could be being misled. And that, that is, a, I, that is, I think, one of the, the struggles. And theorists, theoretical physicists, I think, are some, to some extent, a bit more free. They can kind of speculate wildly and come up with ideas which, um, you know, and, and I, it's interesting that the attitude, these anomalies that I mentioned that we've been seeing in the last years at the LHC, the theorists tend to be much more gung-ho. They're kind of like, yeah, this is, you know, this is really exciting. We're on the brink of something new. Whereas the experimentalists are like, kind of hang on guys, let's let's call it down. Like, these experiments are really complicated. There's plenty of places there could be a mistake still. So I think that's one of the, that's something I struggle with all the time. It's kind of, you know, keep calm, just kind of scrutinize and scrutinize and scrutinize. And at the end, when you finally get the result, okay, we've, we've done everything we can. Now we can sort of say with some confidence that what we're seeing is real. So that, that I think is a hard thing. Did you have a system in terms of when you were, were writing the book, which is a very approachable book, but at the same time is, of course, dealing with ideas that some people may never have read about and, and are not part of the, of, of the kind of common culture. What was your process did you have various readers who would go, ah, Harry, you've forgotten that people don't know what these were. It's, and so you need to go back and you need to explain this and you need to explain that. Was there a kind of uh, a system that you put in place? I mean, I had like friends and family uh, who, who read everything I've written and m none of them are physicists. So that they were a very useful sense check. I think, I think one of the advantages, the way the book is structured, is it sort of starts with, it literally starts with an apple pie and goes eventually ends up at quantum gravity somewhere at the, at the far end. And because of the way it kind of builds up the knowledge, I think hopefully the idea is that you're kind of with each chapter, you're adding a new layer on top of what you what you got before. So you kind of can trace the ideas back. But I suppose the other thing is the book is a pretty I'd say there's as well as the scientific ideas, there's also a lot of storytelling in the book. So there's kind of um, I describe a lot of the, particularly in the earlier science, we're talking about the origins of chemistry and atomic physics, talking about the characters from history, people who were involved in the discoveries, um, but also quite a lot of visits that I went on when I was researching the book. I was really lucky to go to some really amazing places and a lot of, it's amazing actually when you when you approach scientists, I was quite nervous when I was writing the book of kind of emailing some eminent astrophysicists to say, can I come and look at your telescope? And then people were amazingly receptive and then sort of say, oh, of course, yeah, of course. So I ended up doing things like, spent a night on top of this mountain in New Mexico with some astronomers, which was really, really great fun. So I tried to kind of mix the, the sort of hard science with some more kind of descriptive storytelling. Um, so it's kind of the, the book itself is a kind of journey of discovery to an extent. But in terms of kind of getting the ideas across, I think it's partly also the way I think, which is that I, you know, in order to understand something, I really have to kind of take it down to its like simplest elements. And I think because of that, I think that's potentially why I've got something, I, you know, I, 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 that gives me a kind of, uh, that's a useful starting point for explaining scientific ideas, because I can kind of remember when I was first coming against these ideas, well, how did I break this problem down to a point where I could get my head around it? And if you do that, actually, most scientific ideas, although there are, there are some that are very hard, the thing that makes them confusing is you're kind of building on a whole body of assumed knowledge. And that's where people get lost. Actually, any individual idea is quite often not that hard, but you lose people when you start using unfamiliar terminology or jargon. Mm -hmm. So as long as you build that up from the basic level and treat people as, you know, you know your audience are intelligent, but they're not necessarily knowledgeable. And that's, the, I think, the thing to remember. 
There's the thing Richard Feynman talked about. I can't remember which particular idea it was where he was asked to write an hour-long lecture about it and he just kept writing it and writing it and he realised he couldn't get it into an hour. And then his realisation was if we can't get it into an hour-long lecture, it means that we don't really understand it. Mm. And and I wondered, you know, was there any point when you were writing this book where, I mean, what was the hardest thing to break down to create the stories around it to get that sense that i you are able to deliver that knowledge yeah well there, well, there was one idea and this is an idea that i myself as a physicist struggled with a lot so <laughs> this is this is going to get way out there but in the book i talk about these really weird objects called sphalerons so sphalerons are they're not particles they're they're basically things that emerge in quantum field theory in our kind of theory of what the universe is made from. And I'm not sure even now I can really explain to you properly what they are, but I, I went, the, the reason they're interesting is these, these things called sphalerons, we think they existed about a trillionth of a second after the big bang. And they might have been the, uh, the objects that allowed matter to be created over antimatter. So we have this big problem in particle physics, which is every time we do an experiment, at the LHC, you bang particles together, you make, particles and you also make antiparticles their sort of mirror image and every experiment we've done so far you always make an equal number of particles and antiparticles and that suggests that in the big bang when you have the creation of matter you should also create antimatter had that happened the matter antimatter created in the first few fractions of a second would have met up with each other annihilated and you end up with an empty universe with nothing in it apart from a few lonely photons coasting through the infinite blackness and we think that, that, so one of the big questions in particle, the big problems in fundamental physics is how did matter win out over antimatter? And these sphaleron things are thought of possibly being part of the solution to that problem. So I remember going to speak to um, the theorist, he's a very eminent fellow Royal Society at Cambridge who came up with the idea of sphalerons in the kind of on pen and paper back in the, I think it was the 1980s. And he very gamely, he, I remember I spent my whole morning with him. He was really, really generous at this time, writing equations on blackboards, drawing diagrams. And it was one of those things where you're kind of listening to him. And as you're listening, you, I think I, I'm just hanging on by my fingertips. I just about get this. And then as soon as I walked out the room, it just kind of evaporated. It kind of, you know, so so trying to get that across, I think I, I, think I probably in the end, he was very generous when he read the passage back. I think I really missed out pretty much everything he said apart from the, the very very simplest ideas um so that that was one of the struggles but i mean i do come off you know often as a scientist you come up with a particularly as an experimentalist coming up against ideas that are really unfamiliar to you and actually to really understand you're going to have to spend a year probably doing an advanced course on these sorts of things but it's finding i suppose it's finding the kind of what's the important thing about this idea and it what's the essence of it and in the case of these phalerons, if you, the way I think I eventually explained it is if, a, if an ordinary particle like an electron is a little ripple in a quantum field, so there's this thing called the electron field and an electron is a ripple in, a, in the electron field. Well, a phaleron is sort of like a load of different quantum fields all moving together, a bit like kind of, I don't know, it's, it's, it's almost like having multiple fluids moving in motion together. That's sort of about as close as I could get and... And the theorist who I spoke to said, yeah, that's, that's not totally wrong. I think you get away with that. 
<laughs> not totally wrong is a victory. That's definitely a victory. The uh, what what for you the final question really, which is you know you're working at the LHC, which is such a you know remarkable. When you look at the structure of that, every different level of the building of that, and you think about the time that was required from someone coming up with an idea to then actually being able to with technology test it, and I think about things like you know also gravitational waves. You know the recent kind of uh, discovery, the actual measurement of those. What for you now is the next thing where you go well all we need now is just this enormous budget to create this incredible uh, 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 you know those, those things where we've got the idea but we now need to build the machine that's going to test it what for you is the most exciting possibility in that world well so the most i think what i would like to see happen and this is on such a long time scale i don't even know how much of this i would see in my own career and i'm not that old yet um is there's a machine being planned, the successor to the LHC, which is called the Future Circular Collider, which is, it sort of makes the LHC look like a bit like a little toy. It's a 100 kilometer circumference particle accelerator, again, at CERN. It's basically the biggest machine you can fit in the Geneva Basin. So it kind of runs between the Jura Mountains on one side and the Alps on the other. It goes under Lake Geneva and around the entire city, essentially. Um, so this this machine would take us to a whole new regime it's going to go sort of an order of magnitude higher in energy than the lhc and particularly from my point of view the thing that's really well there's there's two really persuasive reasons for doing this one is to do with the higgs boson so the lhc found the higgs boson but the higgs boson is a really troublesome particle to understand according to our current understanding of particle physics such an object shouldn't really be possible it shouldn't really exist and one of the big questions that we haven't got an answer to, and the LHC probably can't answer, is, is the Higgs boson really a fundamental particle or is it made of something else? Is it actually, if you zoom in close enough on the Higgs, will we discover that there are some, there's something else inside it? Because that could, if that's true, that could solve a lot of these weird problems with the Higgs. And this giant machine will basically be like an enormous microscope that can zoom in on the Higgs at an incredible level of detail and tell us, is this thing really as weird as we think it is? or is there something else going on? Um, but the other reason that I think is potentially exciting is these anomalies that we're seeing at the LHC at the moment. What they're hinting at is the existence of new particles, so that some, some kind of new particle, but these particles could well be too heavy for the LHC to create. So it could be that these things are kind of just out of reach at the moment. So if these anomalies are confirmed, and it's looking like they might be, although it's a bit still a bit too early to say, that could be telling us that at the next machine, there's a new set of force fields, a new set of particles that we could well discover. And that machine, we are pretty sure would be guaranteed to be able to create them. So those are the two really persuasive reasons. I mean, I think it's going to be CERN just put out their kind of aspirations for building this machine last year. But now it's this long process of R&D. And I think in the sort of most optimistic scenarios, it doesn't come online until the 2040s and it runs till... 2070s so i mean by 2070 i hope at least i'll i've been able to retire so yeah it's um it, i have to say i find it amazing thinking back to the people who worked i think the first conversations about the lhc happened in the late 70s in sort of 1976 something like that and to imagine a project in a lot of cases as people who you're not going to live to see the thing realize it didn't come online until 2009 so you're talking you know more than 30 years and science seems to be increasingly going that way, particularly in cosmology and particle physics, these really long timescales. And I think that's, it, I think it's amazing, actually, that you can coordinate people 
to work on something that they'll never see the fruit of. It's a bit like building cathedrals in the sort of Middle Ages, where you know you build a bit more of the cathedral every generation, but you know that it's not going to be finished for a century or more. And that's sort of the way physics is going. I think and one of the things to talk about actually in the book is that in the 90s, when I was reading popular science, there was this sense that physics was hurtling towards a dramatic climax, that we there'd been this incredible period of discovery and that we were going to get a theory of everything and it was all going to be wrapped up with a bow. And what we've realized actually is that the problems are much harder and longer term than we realize, both on the experimental side and the theoretical side. And that's sort of that, that's the mindset I think we need to have if we're going to make progress, that we add a little bit more to the puzzle you know, as much as we can as we go. But the, the long-term vision is you have to keep going for decades if you really want to get get somewhere in the end. Yeah, I remember that's always a line I always used to use in, in presentations, which was, you know, none of us are going to live long enough to hear the words, well, that's science finished then, isn't it? Uh, so, um, Harry, your book is, is, is wonderful and is a really great journey into us trying to understand what everything is made of and, and those structures. And it's uh, uh, so thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. Love to talk to you. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks to our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles. If you'd like to support us, we would be greatly appreciative if you did. Harry's book is out now. Robin's book is out now. Check them both out. Back next week with another new episode. Have a great week. Bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.